Well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab it. Make your way to John chapter 15. Uh, We're going to look at the end of John 15 and John 16 today. If you're a visitor here with us, we've been going through the series Believe and Live through the Gospel of John. We just turn uh, verse after verse and page after page to see what God's Word would have to say to our life to shape us. And so we're just going to continue through that today, and we're glad if you are a guest that you're here with us, or if you're tuning in online for the first time, thank you for watching. We'd love to meet you face-to-face in the weeks ahead. And uh, this passage that we're going to look at today comes on the heels of where we were last week in the Gospel of John, a really sweet passage, a really sweet uh, promise that God gives to his people at the end of the last section that we read last week. And I know you guys never forget anything that I tell you, but for those of you that are new, I'm going to catch you up. Uh, Last week, Jesus said that if you believe in him, now the God of all creation looks at you and calls you friend. He looks at us and says, now you are my friend. And that's a big deal, right? We talked about that last week. We tried to unpack that beauty that the almighty creator of the universe would look at us, his creation, and say, you are my friends if you believe me. Now, that really sweet passage from last week is about to turn really, really bitter, really, really quick, okay? Jesus said those words last week, and then he's going to start here in verse 18 is where we're going to pick up and say something that's really bitter, but don't worry, he's going to give us some sweet truths at the end of this section as well. So, long section, so we're just going to dive into God's word this morning and see what it would have to say to us. This is what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master." If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on the account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done the works, or done among them the works, That no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen them. They have both hated me and my Father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. All right, we'll pause right there in this passage and and we'll talk about the section and then we'll go and we'll look at the rest. But before we look at the rest, let's, let's pray this morning. Father, we come to you now knowing that we need you. We need you to help us understand your word. God, even the harder passages that we look at, uh, the passages that, that are difficult or sting at times, those that are bitter, as well as those that are sweet, we need to examine and study. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning that you and your goodness would help us to understand these sobering words. Help us to also understand the promises that we're going to read today. And remember that you do not forget even one of these promises that you've made. Lord, I thank you for the promise that even through hardship and trouble, you will be with us, and that you will overcome these tribulations. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us and strengthen us in you. 
And that, Lord, we would believe in you today and live. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to see three abiding truths in this passage. Three abiding truths that we're going to see. The first one in this first section that I read, the, the abiding truth is this, that the world hates. The world hates. That's a truth that Jesus is giving us in this moment. This is a reality that he's wanting us to grasp and to understand because it will impact the way in which we live. Now, there's multiple questions that come to my mind as we look at this, the world hates truth. And the first is this, what is he talking about? What does he mean when he says the world here? Is he talking about this ball of dirt that we are standing on right now? No, that's not what he's talking about. What Jesus is talking about when he uses the word world here is the, the, the fallen world systems. The evil that is within this world. The people who do not, do not know nor love Jesus Christ as Lord. He's speaking these people, these systems, this evil will hate you. Now the second question I ask as I read this is, okay, how does the world hate us? How does the world hate us? Now if you look carefully at that section I just read to you, you find at least three reasons why and how the world hates us. And the first is the world hates us by persecution. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What Jesus is basically saying here is there's been a storm brewing that has been over my head and raining down storms and thunders on my life. But guess what? It's coming on you as well. The storm is no longer on the horizon. It is coming for you. And he's speaking this specifically to his disciples at this point. And he's saying, if it happened to me, it's going to happen to you. Now... I want to be clear here, when Jesus talks about persecution, us to rightly understand persecution. Persecution for us as Americans does not mean I was on my way to small group and I got a flat tire. That's not persecution. Persecution is not, I went over to the mall on Saturday and I was driving around, I was praying for a parking spot to open up and I could not find a parking spot. So it's persecution. That's, that's not what persecution is. Persecution is not we had a vacation plan and a hurricane came and we weren't able to go on our, our vacation. Like that's, that's not what persecution is, right? That's just living life in a broken world, right? We live in a world that has thorns and thistles and maybe your tire picked up one of those on the way to small group, all right? That's why you have a flat tire. You're not being able to find a parking spot at the mall, that's just called Saturday, all right? That's just the world in which we live in. When he talks about persecution here, we in America are so blessed and we take it for granted every day, if not every Sunday. This is what persecution looks like. These are the stats and the reality of our world. Every month right now, there's roughly 500 Christians who are killed for their faith. Every month, there's somewhere about 200 and 15 church buildings or structures that are being destroyed due to persecution. Estimates that we have now say that in the 20th century, let this, let this settle in in your mind a second. Estimates say right now that in the 20th century, 26 million believers were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. That is more than the previous 19 centuries combined. Did you hear that? What happened in the 20th century, if we added up all of the believers from the previous 19th century that were murdered for their faith, 
would not equal the same number of what happened in the 20th century. We are blessed in America, extremely blessed. But it doesn't mean that persecution isn't happening around our world. It's happening for believers. That's why God's word would tell us that we need to pray for those that are being persecuted. We need to pray for those who are imprisoned. There is conflict alive and well between the church and the world. And it really shouldn't surprise us. Should us? Should it? What Jesus is doing with this statement as he says this is he's hopefully removing the sticker shock from you and mine, you and my mind. Jesus is telling us that this is just the reality of what's going to happen. But he doesn't tell this to scare us. He's not telling this so that we'll run away from him. He's actually going to tell us in verse, 16, or verse 1 of chapter 16, he's telling us all these things so that you won't fall away from him. He doesn't want us to run away. He wants us to plant our feet when those times of persecution and hardship comes. As the world hates us, we would stand firm for him. Now, the application for what Jesus is saying right here is not go and seek out persecution. <laughs> Let's not try to go and seek out to be hated and seek out hardship. The reality is you don't have to. If you love and live for Jesus, it will seek you out. You won't have to seek it out. Jesus is telling us in the moment, it's coming for us. The storm is on the horizon. And the world hated him and it will hate us also. But secondly, you find that the world hated through rejection. You find this in verses 22 through 24. Jesus is speaking right there, and he's talking to these disciples saying, Hey, I've come on the scene, and I've told them the bad news, and I've told the the crowds the good news. The bad news is that we're sinners in need of a Savior, that we were lost in this broken world, and we needed to be found, and Jesus came to find us. So he told us the good news, too, that he had come to rescue and redeem. And the people hated Jesus for it. They rejected what he said. Don't tell us that we're wrong. Don't tell us that we're sinners. Don't tell us we need anything. We've got everything we need within ourselves. And so they have rejected Jesus. Now, don't be confused about what Jesus is saying here. When he says, I've come, and in verse 22, they, they were not guilty of their sin, but then I spoke, and now they have no excuse. Jesus in that moment is not saying that they were innocent, pure people who had no sin in their life and there was no judgment coming. And then I showed up on the scene and now judgment's there. That's not what Jesus is saying in this, mo- in this moment. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been saying over and over again, I came not to condemn the world, but that through me the world would have life and life everlasting. What Jesus is saying in this moment is, as I came onto the scene and as I preached the good news of the Gospel to the people... They have rejected me. And they, their rejection looks vastly different from others' rejection because Jesus was there preaching to them. Jesus was there working miracles in their presence. And they see the miracles and they hear the teaching from the mouth of God himself and they return Jesus' love with rejection. Rejection. And he's saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what hate feels like from the world. They reject us. But verse 25 tells us, too, they don't just reject us because they reject the message of Christ. They'll hate us without cause. Did you see that in verse 25? It's interesting. Jesus said, they hated me without cause. They're going to hate you without cause. 
which seems really weird, really weird that someone could hate someone else without cause. It doesn't seem to make much sense. Why would somebody hate without cause? Well, they do have a reason. They just don't understand their reason for why they hate us. There's a conflict between believers and the world, but the reason why there's that conflict there, the reason why they don't know why they have this conflict with us, is because we have a different love than they have. We have a different love than they have. And so since we have a different love, they're confused because they're like, why would you love those things? And why would you live in that way? And why would you act in that? It doesn't make sense to them. And so they literally hate the things that we love because it's different from the things that they love. We understand this in, in, in multiple ways in our lives. But one perfect example of this is think about two guys that were best friends, really good friends. They did a lot of life together. They loved all the same things together. And... And then one day, a guy meets a girl, and he starts to fall in love with this girl. His time starts to change, his hobbies start to change, and he doesn't spend as much time as he used to with his best friend. And his friend's like, I don't know what he sees in her. Like, we had fun playing our Xbox all day, right? Like, that was, that was fun. We had fun going out and playing sports together. Like, why is he changing his whole schedule and his whole life for this woman? It's because he doesn't understand the love that he has for her. And so there's this tension, this conflict that happens between them, and it makes the relationship go further and further and further apart. And so it is true for us as well. We used to be really close to the world until Christ brought us out of the world and rescued us and saved us. And now our loves have changed. The things that we used to not think about are the things that drive our time and our thoughts and our energy. And the world would look at us and say, why in the world are you pursuing all of these things? It's because our love has changed. And so it would seem that they hate without cause, but the reality is it's because they don't understand the way that we love the things that we love. It's a great change that happens in our lives because of the love of Christ. So what are we supposed to do with this truth, this reality that the world's going to hate us? And the world's going to hate us from, from a number of different angles, through persecution, without cause, or even just through rejection. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, I think the application Jesus gives us back in verse 20, but you got to think about it for a second. got to pause and let the words of Christ marinate in your mind for a second. Jesus said in verse 20, remember that I said to you, a servant is not greater than the master. Now, once again, like I said at the beginning, I know you don't ever forget anything that I ever say from the pulpit, so you guys remember everything that we said a few weeks ago, right? But once again, for those that are new, I just want to encourage you, when Jesus said these words, this is something we covered three weeks ago here on Sunday morning, where Jesus makes this statement, a servant is not greater than his master. Now, you remember the context of when Jesus said that? Jesus said that statement to his disciples as he knelt down and he washed the disciples' feet. And he's telling his disciples, I want you to love and serve as I have loved and served you. And remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about that. How did he love and serve them? By, by washing their feet. Even though he knew they were going to betray him and abandon him and deny him. He knew all of those things and still he bows and he washes their feet. He serves them. 
And I don't think it's accidental that Jesus says the same words again right here. And he's like, hey, remember when I said that to you? Remember? And the reason why I don't think it's accidental is because what Jesus is wanting us to pick up and grasp and understand is this. The disciples at those points as they betrayed him and forsook him and denied him, in a sense hated him, he still loved them. As a world would look at us and forsake us and deny us and betray us and hate us, we should love the world. We should love the world. You see, what happens too often is Christians will hate the people of the world, and then the, the people of the world will hate them in return, and they'll say, ah, see, see, I knew that they were hateful. Jesus said they're hateful. No, there are a lot of jerks for Jesus out there, and that's not what he's calling us to be. He's calling us to love the world. Now, let me unpack that a little bit, what that means to love the world. It means to love the people of the world unconditionally but to reject the systems of the world wholeheartedly. Let me say that again. We are called to love the people of the world unconditionally, but to reject the systems of this world wholeheartedly. And the reason why I repeat that is because the problem with most of us is that we love the systems of this world. We love it wholeheartedly, and then we reject the people of this world. Let me show you what I mean. For many believers, we look at the system of finances that the world has, and we as believers do everything just like the system of the world with our finances. Everything. The way the world spends money is the way we spend money. I mean, that the average Christian in America gives 2% to charitable giving a year, and then we say we're generous people. But God's word is really clear that we are to give cheerfully as Christ has given to us. What did he give to us? He gave sacrificially of his life. He left his home. He literally gave everything for us. And we look and we're like, well, 2%, maybe I'll give, maybe I won't give. We're living our lives and using our money in the exact same way the world is. We're loving the systems of the world. We're not being generous with our giving. And some of us will hear that even online or here this morning, you'll say, well, ah, see, I knew he's only about my money. It's all about my money. He just wants my money. No. No. God doesn't want your money. God wants your heart. That's what God wants. You want your money. God wants your heart. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus is going after your heart because he knows the things that you spend your money on are the things that you love most. And so in this moment, he's, he's saying, no, don't be like the world. Don't love your money. And, and God's not opposed to you having stuff. He's not opposed to you having stuff. What he's opposed to is stuff having you. That's what he's opposed to. And so he's saying, don't spend all of your money. Don't look just like the world. Because if you look just like the world, the world's not going to hate you for it. Another thing we do is we look at the, the world's system when it comes to sexuality. We look at it and we're like, the world system says do what you want with who you want, whenever you want. That's what the world would preach to us. And we too often live the exact same way and say we're believers. We're followers of the Lord. And yet we don't follow the rules of the Lord. It's sad to say, but in church history, um, during the Crusades, 
what would happen during the Crusades is they would baptize these soldiers who tragically and sadly would go murder people in the name of Jesus. And they would baptize them before they would go. But when they baptized them, the Crusaders would be baptized with their sword in their hand held above the water. And the reason why they would do that is they're like, God, you have my spirit and you have my body, but you don't have my sword. My sword is mine, and I'm going to do with it what I want to do with it. And that's what they did. And if we were to fast forward that to our time and our context, we would get baptized with both our hands above the water. We'd have our money in one hand, and we'd have our sexuality in the other hand, and say, Lord, uh, you're the Lord of, of the rest of my life, but these two things, these are mine. And I would say this, that if the Lord is not the Lord of all of your life, then he isn't the Lord of any of your life. We can't look and say, these are the areas that I want to do my way. I'm going to look just like the world in all these ways so the world doesn't hate me. No, you look and say, you're the Lord. What you say, that's what I'll do. Regardless of how I feel about it, Lord, I want to be obedient to you because you are the Lord of my life. And when you start to do that, that's when the world will look at you and be like, nope, that's too far. We want to be able to hold on to our, our, our selfishness and our life. And you're telling me I've got to let that go and submit to the Lord. And sadly, what the world doesn't even realize is that you're losing your soul. You're losing the world. You're losing everything by clinging to the thing that is fleeting in front of you. And Christ is offering us so much more. Would we look to him as the Lord of our life and to submit to him that way, even when the world hates us? Now, after hearing that truth, that the world hates us and the hardship of that, that, that has to lead us to the question, what's the solution to this problem? What's the solution to this pain and this persecution and this hatred that we're going to experience in this life as we follow the Lord? Well, this is where Jesus circles back around to some sweetness. He comes back to some sweetness in verse 26. He's going to talk about a helper that we need. Look back at verse 26 with me, and we'll read a few verses here. But when the helper comes, and this is the one that's going to help us in the midst of our pain and persecution, right? When the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, a sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I have still many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will speak on, not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, 
For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the hopeful part. We're actually going to get to a greater hope by the end of this chapter. But Jesus looks and he's like, there is pain, there is suffering, there is struggles, there's persecution. All that stuff's going to happen. But I'm sending you a helper. And this is the second abiding truth. That there's a spirit that helps. Yes, there's a world that hates, but there's also a spirit that helps. And we mentioned this a couple weeks ago. There's a complete misunderstanding about the Trinity. We think that God the Father is the mean one, and Jesus the, the Son is the loving one, and the Spirit is the weird one. And that's not the reality of it. And the Spirit is the helper, the advocate, the counselor, the one who cares for us. So in the midst of this moment... He says, I'm sending you a helper. Great, Jesus, how's he going to help? Because that sounded pretty bad what you just said. How is he going to help us in the midst of moments like that? And Jesus gives a number of ways that he's going to help. And first, he says, he's going to help you to share the gospel, to share your faith. It says in verse 26 that the Spirit bears witness about me. And then he says, and you will bear witness about me also. Which... Do you find it a little interesting <laughs> that a lot of times when we, within the church, think about the Spirit, the first thing we rush to is what the Spirit can do for us? We think about all the different spiritual gifts that we're allowed to have and get from the Holy Spirit, and I'm not opposed to those. If you are a believer, you've got at least one spiritual gift promised from the Spirit, right? But yet we spend all of our time thinking about ourselves. when the reality is maybe we should step out and serve and reflect the helper. And as we serve and reflect the helper and care for other people, we'll find those gifts. I believe wholeheartedly that some of you, even in this room right now, you're discouraged and you're in desperate need of somebody who has that gift of encouragement. But that person that has a gift of encouragement isn't using it or is not here today. And we need to work together as a body. And we need to help point people to Christ and help strengthen people in Christ. See, the, the Spirit's goal isn't to make everybody look at the Spirit and say, hey, check out all my signs and wonders and works that the Spirit does. No, the Spirit points people to Christ. See, it's not all about us. He's saying right here that the Helper's going to come and bear witness of me, and then you will bear witness of me also. The primary role of the Holy Spirit is not signs and wonders, but to point people to Jesus and to make people more like Jesus. So when the Spirit shows up, he helps us to bear witness of Christ, to share the gospel. And yes, this will take us to difficult places and to risky places. This will call us to go to difficult extremes. Jesus said in verse 2 that you're going to go to synagogues and people are going to push you out. There's going to be people that don't like you and reject you. And there you bear witness of me. But the Spirit doesn't just bear witness of Christ and empower us to bear witness of Christ, he also convicts. Look at verse 8. It says he convicts the world. Convicts of what? Of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Spirit comes into our heart and he convicts us of the sin that we have in our heart. He convicts us. I mean, if you've ever felt the, the pricking of your spirit, that's the Holy Spirit saying this is an area of sin. 
where you look and you're like, I didn't just lie at that one point, but I realize I'm a liar. That's the spirit convicting you of sin. You're not just saying, I mismanage money. That's not what I'm doing. I, I'm, I'm greedy. That's the spirit convicting you of sin. I'm not just bad at relationships. I'm really selfish. I want everything done my way, and that's why I ruin all the relationships in my life. That's the spirit convicting you, not to make you feel bad, not to bring you low, but that's so you would repent and find life. This is what he's doing. And then it says that he's also convicts of righteousness. What is that talking about? How is the spirit supposed to convict of righteousness? Like the sin makes sense, but he says in, in verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will no longer see me. What he's saying in that moment is that there's only one, there's only one who lived the righteous life that was able to go from death to the very presence of God the Father due to his works. And it was Jesus and Jesus alone. None of us have the ability in our own righteousness to walk into the presence of Almighty God. We cannot do it. We have to come in the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. If we look at our own lives and we try to justify ourselves and our own righteousness and our own morality, it will lead to death and separation. It will lead to judgment. But the Spirit comes in and convicts us of our self-righteousness and causes us to look to Christ, the only one who is righteous that could go into the presence of the Father on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to face, face judgment. And that's the third thing he says. The Spirit convicts us of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. What does that mean? It means this. That if Jesus has judged the greatest evil in this world, the rule of this world, Satan, if he has judged him, then he will judge every single one of us for our evil and our sin. He will. Some of you might be thinking, Brian, are you just trying to scare me with all this, this judgment language that's in here? Yes. We should be terrified. <laughs> we should be terrified in the reality that there's a holy God that we will stand in front of one day and give account for our lives. That should scare us. Apart from Christ, it should terrify us. I mean, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not connected to Jesus, then you should go to sleep at night with a bike helmet on and a cup and one eye open in fear of this judgment. This is the reality of it. Because this day is coming. It's coming. And the Spirit will convict us that there is a day coming where we will face judgment. But our hope is those that are in Christ have forgiveness, have life and life everlasting. And so now when the Spirit comes to us to convict us of these different areas of our life, it is so that we can live in that life and have joy and have a helper through these different times. So we don't fear judgment. We look forward to it because justice will be done. And all that is broken will be fixed. So the Spirit, the Spirit, yes, He helps us. He helps us by helping us share the good news of Jesus. He helps us by convicting us of our sin. But then He also helps us by guiding us. Guiding us. If you look at verse 13, it says, The Spirit will guide you into all truth. I am so thankful that the Spirit guides us. We live in a world that whispers lies to us and brings confusion about every area of our lives. Every area of our lives of what marriage should look like, what a godly relationship should look like, how I should spend my money, how I should spend my time, the things that are okay and the things that are not okay. The world is always whispering 
those lies to us. But the Spirit comes to guide us into all truth. The Spirit speaks to us as we read the pages of God's Word, of what's right and wrong. Who, are, who has our true identity? Who has created us and sustains us? All of that we find as we turn the pages and the Spirit allows us to understand His truth. The Spirit gives us the clarity that we have and need in our lives. Now, you might think, all right, Ryan, that's the encouraging words right here. It, is the Spirit really, really enough for us? Is the Spirit really sufficient and powerful enough to help us through the persecution and the tribulation that we're going to face in this world? Is the Spirit enough? Well, I'd encourage you to, to read the Bible and to, to turn the pages of the Bible and to see the reality is this. As you look in the Bible, roughly a third of our Bible is written to believers who were in the, the minority, who were the marginalized and the outcast, those who were um, enslaved at some points in captivity, I mean, those who were oppressed. I mean, if you read the pages of the scripture, it is speaking to people who are the least and look at what God did through them. I mean, just look at history alone. If you're not going to trust the pages of Scripture, look at what God has done through the history of time. Yes, the Spirit is more than enough for us. You see, we might think, do we have enough power to impact this world? And Jesus, as he speaks here, says, yes. The Spirit is your helper. The Spirit will help you share the gospel. He will lead you into truth, and he will convict of sin. That's good news. As we share the gospel, we don't have to convict people of sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is the job to share the good news and let the Spirit do his work. The third and probably the most encouraging abiding truth that I find in this passage that we're going to read today is that Christ overcomes. The world hates the Spirit will help us, but Christ overcomes. He overcomes all these things. Now, I want to start in verse 33, and then we'll jump back to verse 16. But listen to how Christ ends this whole section. I have said these things to you, that you may have peace. Peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Christ has overcome the world. This is a truth that we have to grasp and understand. There's multiple ways that he overcame the world. But let's jump back to verse 16 and see what the word of God says. Jesus said, in a little while you will see me no longer. And again in a little while you will see me. Some of the disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me and a little while you will see me. Because I'm going to the Father. So they said, what does this mean in a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask, and so, they said, so he said to them, is this what you're asking of yourselves, what I meant by saying in a little while you will see me again, or you will, you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And then he's going to give them an analogy to understand what he's just said. Verse 21, when a woman has given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy of the human being being born into the world. 
So also you will have sorrow now, but you will, but you see, uh, but you will see me again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will not ask me. Truly, I tell you, you will ask of the Father in my name, and He will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say that I will ask my Father on your behalf, for my Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And the disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. Now we know that, all, that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Do you now believe? For behold, the hour is coming, indeed, and it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that you may have peace. In this world you have tri- tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Jesus goes back into bitter speech, and he tells them, you're going to have sorrow. He says, you're going to see me for a little bit longer, and then you're not going to see me anymore, and then you'll see me again. And they're like kids talking in the back of the classroom. They're like, what are you talking about? And what Jesus is talking about in that moment is how he is going to overcome our sorrows. Jesus is going to overcome all of our sorrows. And even says, the way that I overcome all of your sorrows will bring it to a point that no one will be able to take your joy from you. So how is he doing this? Jesus is saying, hey, in a little while, you're not going to see me because I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to be thrown in a tomb. You're not going to see me for three days. But then you will see me again. As I defeat death and I defeat the grave and I raise from the dead and I stand before you, you will see me again. And then all the sorrow that you had, all the anguish of looking at my death and me being crucified on the cross, now you have joy because I've defeated death. This is what he's saying in this moment. I have overcome your sorrow because I have defeated the greatest sorrow that you have, death itself. Death itself. He overwhelms the sorrow with the intensity of joy. He'll do the same for us. So that when those times of tribulation come in our lives, whatever that tribulation would be, physical health tribulation or financial troubles or relational troubles or mental troubles or spiritual tribulation, Jesus promises us, I want to give you peace. I want to give you joy. And I'm going to do that because I've overcome the grave. I've overcome this world. Jesus purchased our peace through his blood on the cross when he rose from the grave. And Jesus' resurrection is proof to us that nothing can separate us from this peace. Nothing can separate us from this joy. Nothing can separate us from this love. There is neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor things created. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ because he has overcome all of it. He's overcome the world. As we take time right now to turn to the Lord's Supper, I want to say something to both the believer and the non-believer in this room.
to my non-Christian friend in this room, I want you to know this. That if this morning you don't rejoice with the thought of being near Christ, you don't rejoice in the idea of thinking, man, I would rather have pain in my life in the presence of Christ than to not have the presence of Christ. Then this passage is not so much a promise to you to encourage you and to lift you up. Instead, this is an invitation to you. Jesus is offering you peace between him and the Father. The sin that has separated you from relationship with him, he's offering you peace and salvation. He's offering you joy. He's offering you a way to, to move forward in the midst of pain. And I've found in the 38 years of my life that the only joy that could never be taken from me is the one that I found in Christ. So Jesus, in this moment, we want you to read this and believe in him. Now for those of us who are in Christ, the Lord's Supper is an amazing gift for us. It's an amazing gift that reminds us how Jesus overcame our tribulation, how he overcame persecution, how he overcame the world so that he could look at us and promise us peace. The way that he did that was he gave his body for us on the cross. That's what this bread reminds us of. And this cup reminds us of his blood that was shed for us in our place. And God's word is extremely clear that every time we take the Lord's Supper, that this is a time for the non-believer to look and consider the work of Christ and repent and believe in him and find salvation. But this is also a, t- a chance for the believer to look and remember the sins of their own life that led to Christ having to give his life. And as you remember those sins, you confess those sins to the Lord. And then as we take the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder that he has overcome not just the world, but the curse of our sin as he went to the cross for us. So if you are not a believer, just think about this moment. Use this moment of of prayer time to confess him as Lord and be saved others of us who are believers, we know him. I'm going to start us in prayer of confession, and then I'd invite you in that moment of silence to pray and confess whatever sin that the Holy Spirit convicts you of this morning. Pray that to him, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we, we pray now, confessing that we have loved the systems of this world and hated the people of this world. Lord, forgive us of that. We have done with our money just as the world has done instead of what you have done for us by joyfully giving your life because you loved us to rescue and redeem us. And we know that you're not against us having things, but Lord, we confess that things have had us instead of us having things. So would you forgive us of that? Forgive us of our covetousness where we have not learned to be content in the state of the things that you've given us, the ways that you've blessed us. And we've longed for more and more stuff instead of more and more of you. Lord, I, I pray that you would forgive us of our unrighteous anger this week. How we've spoken harshly to our friends, to our spouses, to our kids. We've been guilty of using our mouths to speak bitterness instead of blessing to others. For that, we're sorry, Lord change our hearts, oh Lord, and in doing so, we know that you'll change our mouths. Lord, we pray all this in your name.
take a moment now to confess your sins to the Lord as well.